everyone. Welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. First, a quote from this week's speaker, Dr. Greg Niemeyer. Dr. Niemeyer is a professor of psychology at the University of Florida, where he has taught the doctoral course on the DSM for over a decade. I wouldn't even need one finger uh, to count the number of toddlers that I've seen with anorexia. Um, and as far as I know, I don't know many preteen instances of bulimia. Um, and certainly, you know, you don't see... Uh, you know, you don't you don't see restrictive food intake disorder very commonly at all, or rumination in adulthood. First, a little background and some definitions. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, shorthand DSM, is a very important document published by the American Psychiatric Association, which offers a common language and standard criteria for the classification of mental disorders. It is used or relied upon by clinicians researchers, psychiatric drug regulation agencies, health insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, the legal system, and policymakers. The current edition, published in 2013, called the DSM-5, is the fifth edition. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manuals have always been a work in progress, a living document. Let's consider this little statistic. I think we know the notion of half-life. This is the amount of time required for a quantity to fall to half its values as measured at the beginning of the time period. In pharmacology, the half-life of a drug refers to how long it takes for half of the drug to be eliminated from the bloodstream. When applied to our learning, after three years, if not sooner, half of what we know is either forgotten or is obsolete, hence the need for continuing education, of course. But new knowledge also generates revisions of the DSM. At least we have to trust this. When it comes to eating disorders, new knowledge has generated the single biggest change in the DSM-5, a move away from categorizing eating disorders by age to a united system of feeding and eating disorders. By combining the symptomatology, it is thus more possible to study the links, avoiding the generational disconnects. Dr. Niemeyer will fill us in. Dr. Greg Niemeyer is professor of psychology in the Department of Psychology at the University of Florida, where he has taught the doctoral course on the DSM for over a decade. Now to our interview. Dr. Niemeyer, thank you for being able to share with us today your knowledge about eating disorders and how they are represented in the various diagnostic and statistical manuals. So... Maybe we could begin with your discussing and telling us how the DSM has sort of morphed over the years. Well, the DSM, uh, it has morphed over the years, and it has changed uh, dramatically over its 
60-year history. Prior to the DSM, there really was it was almost a pre-printing press era of psychiatric nosology. And when the DSM was introduced in the 50s, in 1952, post-war, um, it really sort of set a standard uh, for just sort of uh, regulating and standardizing the uh, the classification of mental disorders. And um, But, you know, it also was created during a time in which, uh, particularly in psychiatry, the predominant conceptualization was an analytic one. It was a psychoanalytic one. So it really cut its eye teeth uh, and was formed within the crucible of psychoanalysis. And it really wasn't that long until, um, you know, incursions into psychiatry were made by a variety of other fields. And, of course, the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, very much had aspirations uh, for the use of the DSM beyond psychiatry and psychology and social work and other mental health professions. So they knew they had to uh, move away from an analytic leaning, which they began in the second version, came out in 1968, DSM-2. But they really began doing it only by glomming in some other orientations. And so the definitions and disorders were almost um, almost had the look and feel of being drafted by committee. You know, when a committee can't agree on a definition or they can't agree on a concept or whatever, everybody chips in a piece and nobody relinquishes anything. So you had these odd criteria sets that would be half behavioral and half analytic. So, you know, phobias would be described as an intense uh, intrapsychic fear of or the avoidance behavior related to the phobic stimulus. And so it had this feeling of almost like, uh, you know, tastes great, less filling, tastes great, less filling. It's a very odd kind of uh, juxtaposition of these two entirely different worldviews. So do you think they got it right this time? <laughs> well, it's interesting. In the DSM has always been a politicized um, process. It's always um, generated controversies. But I don't think any any previous edition of the DSM has even remotely approached the level of controversy that has uh, dogged the DSM-5, in part because they made so many substantial changes um, and in part because um, those changes were avowedly made on non-empirical bases. So they're departing from some of the cherished canons of DSM lore, um, that is that something would be you know, diagnostic and not ideological. Now it's becoming ideological. Um, that it would be evidence-based. Clearly, most of the major decisions were, at best, evidence-informed uh, or alluded to. But in many cases, there was absolutely no literature to support the changes. They just were made on the basis of other considerations: clinical utility, uh, convenience, uh, clarity, um, but but not really on the basis of. Um, uh, empirical evidence. Well, is the eating disorders category very controversial now, uh, in your view? Well, it is. It is, and it isn't. Uh, it, it is. It isn't in the sense that it doesn't have the wholesale revision that some a- other areas do. I mean, just radically uh, reconceptualized and reconfigured. Um, so it doesn't rise to the level of um, you know of some of the areas, you know, the introduction of this, uh, you know, the mild mood dysregulation disorder to get to pick up the kid, uh, you know, to reduce the number of uh, diagnoses of bipolarity in children, really controversial, you know, dropping all the different types of schizophrenia, that very big change, you know, keeping all the all the professional, all the pervasive developmental disorders and Asperger's and, and autism all put on into a single category of autistic uh, spectrum disorder. I mean, those are, those are 
dropping the multi-axial system, no more multi-axial system. But I mean, those are sea changes. Um, so eating disorders, not by that, by that um, comparison, but they are big changes. I mean, they combined all of what was in DSM-4 Chapter 1, which was the feeding disorders of infancy and early childhood. They combined those with the conceptually very distinct uh, eating disorders that typically are in adolescence and adulthood that you know previously were you know in very different parts of the book and now it's one category of feeding and eating disorders and the tie that binds is not an empirical one at all in fact if anything the available evidence suggests that there's a very uneven relationship and arguably no bridge whatsoever between the feeding disorders and the eating disorders but they share a manifest similarity of having to do with eating. And so they glommed them together on that basis. That was controversial. Um, I think, uh, you know, there was the uh, inclusion of the binge eating disorder that was, you know, appendicized in DSM-4. It came up uh, into the manual and has its own code now. So that was a big change. The DSM continues to change and, and disorders continue to change in part as culture and society evolve and, uh, and develop over time. We're in the middle of an interview with Greg Niemeyer, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. Well, let's move more specifically to the subject of eating disorders, beginning with feeding disorders. Sure. Which sort of surprised me to find that it was labeled as such. I don't know what I thought it. What what was it in the DSM four? Well, in the DSM four and in three, the um, the first chapter of the book was called uh, "Feeding Disorders of Infancy and Early Childhood." Oh, that's right. Yeah, and it was put there deliberately because um, you know they basically were starting the book developmentally, and they were starting with the things that would come first. So. Um, and that's a tradition that they sort of have preserved in DSM-5. But that was that was there, and it was just, you know, it was pica, and it was the rumination disorder, and it was um, the, the um, feeding disorder of, uh, of infancy or early childhood, that failure to thrive. And, you know, that's, that's what was in the feeding disorder section. And then over in eating disorders was the uh, bulimia and, uh, you know, the two different types of, uh, of anorexia that, you know, have sort of changed across time from DSM one to two to three to four. But but um, you know, anorexia has been in there from the from the get go, from the earliest manual in 1952. Um, but never the twain shall meet. I mean, there was really no, and there remains uh, no literature that really provides a strong empirical or conceptual link between feeding and eating disorders. But they are now joined into a common category, and uh, and removed from the front of the book. I mean, they're no longer it's no longer a chapter one because they are conceptualized as not being limited either to adulthood. Presumably, you could have a toddler with anorexia uh, in the new world order of the DSM and eating and feeding disorders, or you could have um, you know pica or rumination or um, you know a food intake disorder as an adult. Um, now, in practice, that doesn't happen. I can't tell you, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't even need one finger uh, to count the number of toddlers that I've seen with anorexia. Um, and as far as I know, I don't know many preteen instances of bulimia. Um, and certainly, you know, you don't see uh, 
you know, you don't you don't see restrictive food intake disorder very commonly at all or rumination in adulthood. So by combining them together, they're opening up the possibility of um, you know of developmental expressions of the eating disorders in in childhood and the feeding disorders in adulthood. But in practice, I think that's going to represent a two-way street without any traffic. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I just don't think it's, uh, you're going to see a lot of anorectic toddlers. Well, let's go through the feeding disorders briefly and then spend a little bit more time on uh, anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating. Sure. So in the feeding disorders, you know, th- there's, there's not a lot of new news uh, in DSM-5. You, you still have PICA which is it's basically persistent eating of non-nutritional substances uh, for more than a month. And now sometimes they're usually they're non-food substances, but they can be you know, non-nutritional. Uh, you know, somebody who just eats uh, fistfuls of you know, white flour, for example, that's technically a food stuff, but it certainly would qualify for pica. Um, and of course, there are the rule out that it can't be um, you know a developmentally appropriate thing. So. Pike is not for the you know kids who eat in you know in kindergarten who eat paste because everybody eats paste you know it, it smells good and, and it's gooey and it's not for you know the um, you know the middle middle school kids who chew off their erasers or um, you know bite into uh, their uh, number two cedar pencils so it's not it's not development it has to be have rule outs for developmental uh, appropriateness and. Uh, you know, and, and cultural acceptedness, um, uh, but um, but otherwise, it, you know, PICA remains the same. It's there's no real changes in DSM five over um, over any previous editions. It's fascinating all the things that go into learning learning how to eat. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely true. I mean, we think about eating, you know, just as almost an automatic given. It just seems like, gosh, you know, you you grow up and you learn to eat and. But the emphasis really is on learn. I mean, if you think about the amount of mastery that's involved in something as simple as learning to use silverware, you know, and you don't you don't quite recognize that until you um, experience some kind of a disability, or if you have not eaten with chopsticks, chopsticks, and you try to you know manipulate your food for the first time with chopsticks, you begin to realize that these are actually pretty subtle, nuanced, and complex kinds of things. And of course, there's lots of culture and familial stuff related to food too. So you've got the mastery tasks, but you've also got sorting out what's what's appropriate to eat, what's not appropriate to eat. As a kid, um, you know, Freud definitely had it right in relation to orality. Uh, anything that's uh, put in an infant's hand will go into his or her mouth. And over time, they have to sort of learn what is and isn't appropriate to masticate and to swallow and to use uh, as a nutritional food source. And that's, and that's complex. And of course, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, move into adulthood without really figuring that one out very well in terms of uh, identifying nutritious foods and, and uh, you know, suffering, you know, consequences associated with poor diets and all. But, you know, so you have the mastery tasks, uh, you got to sort out what's, you know, correct and what's not correct food. You've got all kinds of Texture uh, things to deal with, uh, then you know, particularly in childhood, you know, your kids are sorting through things that not only in terms of flavor are acceptable and unacceptable, uh, good or bad, highly culturally determined, but um, but also textures. You know, what what uh, 
tastes, you know, what feels too squishy, what feels too rough. Um, and, uh, you know, coming to learn to, you know, accept the, the, the crunchy, uh, quality of some vegetables or even fruits and, uh, not be averse to it. Um, or the, you know, soupy quality or mushy quality of, you know, oatmeal or baby food or whatever it is. So there are tons of, uh, you know, of, of things to learn. Um, and, you know, you only need to talk to somebody about the kinds of experiences that they had in relation to food and the messages that they received about food growing up in their family, you know, eat every drop because there are people in the world who are starving or, you know, uh, never take the last bit of food. That's, uh, you know, that's gluttony or that's uh, insensitive or, you know, uh, never serve yourself first. And so we have a lot of food-related rituals, prohibitions. There's just a lot of, you know, culture poured into our meals. I mean, our eating has, as a principal ingredient, has cultural and familial, uh, you know, pieces to it. And so all that's got to be, uh, you know, learned over the course of infancy and childhood. And, you know, those are not small tasks. And most of us make it through absolutely effortlessly. We come to sort out what we like and what we don't like, what's good and what's not good. Um, we eat capably. We learn that, um, you know, that we, we can eat with silverware and, uh, you know, not barbarically with our hands. And we get along quite fine. Uh, but that's not true with some with some kids. And, well, what about kids or people who are totally disgusted by can't even look at certain kinds of foods. Is that a, f- a food phobia or is that a avoidant thing or, or uh, what is that? There, there is. I mean, there's uh, absolutely, um, you know, food phobias. Um, you know, and some of them are very, very uh, concrete and, and discreet. I, I mean, a case in point would be something like uh, peanut butter phobia. And, uh, you know, the, the fear there is, um, you know, is uh, because it's such a, uh, viscous, thick uh, kind of medium that you that you you would basically choke on it. That your you know that your um, tongue would stick to the roof of your mouth and you would be unable to breathe and you'd suffocate. Um, now it hasn't gotten to the point that um, you know that they have a subspecifier of uh, of uh, peanut butter phobia as you know crunchy and smooth, but it is absolutely the case that uh, there are people who have that level of phobia around that particular item. And in truth, we all have, virtually everyone has foods that they would regard as disgusting and, um, you know, that, that, you know, other, other people or other cultures would eat and regard as a delicacy. And, uh, you know, you see that cross-culturally all the time. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a familiar enough thing that, you know, we can all identify, you know, one or more, uh, food uh, or food type that that really is disgusting. I'm not just talking about the, the broccoli of childhood, but um, you know, various kinds of whatever. If you serve up, you serve brain in one context. Uh, it's a delicacy. Serve it to somebody else, and you know, you're going to induce nausea. So these things are strongly, highly culturally uh, determined, and then there's wide individual variability from that point on. That doesn't translate into an actual, you know, feeding disorder until it becomes so limited that it actually impairs the ability to get sufficient nutrition. And that it's really only at that level 
that um, that these you know dramatic taste preferences or or disgust would um, enter the picture as a clinical problem. So are food phobias under eating disorders now, or where are they? Nope, a food phobia is still under the uh, phobic disorders. It's it'd be recognized as a specific phobia, and um, and not as a and not as a um, you know feeding uh, and eating disorder. So it's you know it's just one of those you know curious things, as is the case in many disorders with the DSM. They could they could land could land in different places, um, but it really is the anxiety that is the key disability with the. Um, you know, with the food phobias, and, and it's the it's the target of treatment. Obviously, is to get that anxiety down. What about the picky eater? Where does that go? The super picky eater would be, you know, the one that we were just talking about, which is uh, in the DSM three and four. It was called a feeding disorder of infancy or early childhood. Now it's called a restricted food intake disorder, and you know, this is somebody who just. Um, you know, who eats just like a very few things. And developmentally, that's not odd. Um, uh, that's, you know, you'll see picky eaters as kids, but typically what ha- happens is their palate broadens as they grow up. And, and you know, in grade school or, you know, kindergarten, nursery school, they may, they may eat only, you know, French fries and applesauce and, a, and cheese pizzas. And that's like nothing else. Nothing else will go in their mouth. Um, but then as they you know, move through and uh, sample lunchroom foods and become familiar with and acclimated to different uh, broader bands of food, then their palates extend and, um, you know, they sort of grow out of it. Um, but but when they don't, it, it, uh, it can become significantly problematic. And for some of the kids who have really serious uh, restricted food intake disorders, I mean, you literally cannot get your nutritional needs met if all you eat is applesauce and french fries. Um that's you know that's going to create some you know some nutritional uh, problems. So um, so that would get diagnosed as a restricted food intake disorder. That was Greg Niemeyer, and I'm Barbara Alexander. In our next podcast, Dr. Niemeyer and I will continue our discussion with a special focus on eating disorders in adulthood, such as anorexia and bulimia. I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. And by the way. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. So don't miss it. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.